you might be familiar enough to be aware that this whole letter is one uh, protracted con- uh, confrontation uh, between Paul and this Galatian church because they've been taken in by a false gospel. And here as we dive in uh, to the second part of the fourth chapter, Galatians uh, 4.12 uh, will begin. Uh, this is Paul starting to use a little bit of an image or imagery as opposed to just speaking plainly. Uh, he's going to use what he calls himself, the word he uses is an allegory, an image, uh, a, a similarity, a likeness. Uh, and all for the purpose of trying to pull them back from um, following a false gospel that is, in this particular letter, a false gospel is any particular effort that you yourself are bringing to make your standing before God good or right or righteous is Paul's word. Add anything to it, you've lost it. It's a true example of subtraction by way of addition. And so now Paul is going to appeal to them this way. Because he is a Jew and most of the believers in Galatia are Gentiles. And so he says, Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am. For I also have become as you are. That is, I'm becoming to live like a Gentile, so live like me. Quit worrying about all these law ceremonies. You did me no wrong. Now he's speaking about his missionary journey in which he planted the Galatian churches. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. And it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I again am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ would be formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Why are they falling away from this glorious gospel? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar in Mount Sinai is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you 
who are in labor, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And this is Paul's allegory. That closes that section. He begins to start to make some real practical applications throughout the rest of the letter uh, to all the church of Galatia. But he ends here in making his uh, pointed remark of the main thesis of his whole letter to end with an image or an allegory. It has to do with two women, one born uh, a child of slavery, one born a child of freedom, coming from one father. As we saw earlier, we are um, children of God by being children of Abraham. This is uh, the point that uh, Paul is making earlier in the letter, is that if you have faith like Abraham, you have pure faith, the faith that saves, the faith that comes with a true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of Christ, that faith lines you up in a particular horizontal, chronological, um, um, genealogical lineage that is not biological, but it is faith. It is, there's a certain type of people that have walked this earth. They're called saints. They're holy. And they're only holy because they mortify themselves. Because they have no uh, pride or arrogance or self-righteousness in themselves. Which is the unique feature in large part that separates Christianity from all other world religions and human philosophies. Is that from the very beginning there is no virtue we bring to the table. Especially this morning. No virtual virtue we bring to the table in our relationship with God. And if you understand that, you need to eat this bread. You need to drink this cup today. If you don't understand that, do not eat this. You will bring judgment upon yourself. The unity that comes from having Abraham to be our father, therefore, begs the question, then who is our mother? And that's what Paul is trying to answer this morning. Unity. Having one father, being in one family. Did you ever see those uh, awkward family pictures? I feel like the 90s were perfect for this. Uh, where everyone's wearing denim. And they're like awkwardly leaning against a tree or something. And maybe there's a silhouette of a cat in the background. Um, well, we are part of a family. You see... There's a unity to being just born in a family. And then if you're going to do an awkward family picture, you're probably going to put on a uniform. And I think back in the 90s it was denim. Denim jacket, denim shirt, denim jeans. And you're all going to get together. But that's uniform. Like you're all going to put on the same thing. And then, of course, you know everyone smiles for the picture. And then once the picture's over, the kids are pulling each other's hair and dad's yelling and everyone's fighting. 
So there's no real uh, internal unity. The picture looks great. You just didn't see the beginning of the picture and the end of the picture or the ride that got you there. You see, this is our Christian walk. At first, it's this. Galatians 3.16, there's unity. There's a promise made by Abraham, Paul says early in the letter, and to his offspring, and he doesn't say offsprings, he says one, unity. One offspring, which is Christ. Okay? So we are in the family by Christ. Unified, not by multiple, by one. One Jesus, one Lord. Therefore, because of that, we have Abraham to be our father, but then by that we're given the spirit, which we read earlier, that we cry out, Abba, Father, that God himself becomes our father, because we're in this covenant people that have been given the promises of God, and the very great precious promises of God, most typical, most, most um, top of the mountain promise of that is, he has given us his Holy Spirit. That is it. That's your, that's your down payment, your suffragis in Greek, that is your uh, uh, down payment that you will inherit the Holy Land, the inheritance to come, the house. The car, all the stuff you want in the inheritance. Abraham was promised a lot of land. How do you get into that? You have to be unlocked into that new heavens, new earth to come by the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, that means the beginning of the new age has broken upon your heart and you truly are children of God, therefore, children of Abraham, therefore, you have the Spirit which was promised to Abraham a long time ago. So that's unity. We're part of one family. And, and then, of course, that produces uniformity. We're going to have a family picture, and we're all going to put on a, a unique type of uh, clothing that makes us all look good and unified in the family picture. Well, that is uh, Galatians 3.27. For as many of you have been baptized, that's what baptism is, putting on the family garment. For as many of you have been baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ, you see. That's, the, that's how we dress as a family. We dress in Christ. You put on Christ, for now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you have all become one in Christ. You are uniform in Christ. And so now, the problem here with Paul is that he's saying, you know you were baptized in Christ. You know there's no difference between you all. Why are you making these differences? Why are you missing the gospel? You need to go back to your baptism and figure it out. You don't understand what that baptism meant. And so, even though we can have unity and uniformity, what Paul is trying to get at here this morning is conformity. That is, we're not a family that just takes nice pictures, but we actually live nicely with one another in love. That we actually don't have Christ just on the outside, baptized into Christ by seal only, name membership in the church by name only. No. That we have Christ inside. That the way we dress is indicative of who we are. And so for that, Paul flips the metaphor. He, speak, he, he quits speaking about fatherly metaphors. And he says this. O oh, little children, of whom again I am in the anguish of childbirth. Until Christ would be formed in you. You see. Not just putting Christ on you, but now Paul wants you to be formed on the inside. And that is, that is a painful thing. That takes a lifetime of holiness and growth. But this is what Paul's goal is. That if they would understand this true gospel, they would truly be formed 
morphe in the Greek, that they would have the form of Christ shaping inside of them. So if Abraham is our father, the question then is who is our mother? And so Paul says, it is written, there was a slave woman and a free woman. The son of the slave woman was according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman was according to the promise. He's saying to the Galatians, you want to be under the law. You want to do things for God. You want to earn your righteousness and earn your status before the Lord. And you see the law as a good vehicle or instrument to do that. He challenges them and says, you don't even know what the law is. Listen, you're mostly Gentiles. I'm a Jew. Okay? You who want to be under the law, he says, do you not read the law? It's not just about commandments. It's not just Leviticus. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is, in Hebrew, the Torah, the teaching. And so he goes back to them and says, read the beginning part. We have our father Abraham, who had particularly not one but two wives. And because he had two wives, he had two sons. And that is important for us to know how we relate to God. And the relation of all this, Paul's word for this is allegory. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So when, when, when you hear the word allegory, you might think of uh, C.S. Lewis, um, Chronicles of Narnia, or um, some type of um, really creative movie or book that someone wrote uh, that is completely untethered uh, from reality or truth or history because everything is symbolic and everything should be interpreted as something uh, that was in the mind of the creator. Or uh, you can even take this, usually people will take songs that um, somebody wrote about a breakup and then someone else will listen to the song and say, well, that song says to me X, Y, Z, and you allegorically reinterpret it in some direction. That is not. That's the furthest thing from what, from what Paul is saying here. For example, a very old allegory, even predating here Paul, of course, is Plato's allegory of the cave. Without the gospel, Plato was trying to find truth. And he believed as though there were light shining through this window behind me upon all of you. And everything I saw was shadows. But that's all I knew because I was chained to this position. And therefore, uh, all I really thought was real was shadows. Until someday I crawled out of the cave and got over there into the sun and saw real people walking. Not just shadows of people walking behind me, but real live people walking. Right? This is what's called uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Now, no one interprets Plato's allegory uh, as being Plato's talking about a real person who was chained to a real cave and saw real shadows and really walked out. It's, it's symbolic. The whole thing's symbolic. It's non-historical. It's non-real. It's non-literal. Right? This is not... Right? This is not what Paul is doing. For both places, he says this. Here's my allegory. And he says, it is written, Abraham had two sons. And then later on, he'll say, it is written. And he quotes Isaiah to back up his point. What he's doing in allegory, allegory, the term really means double speech. Or speech with another meaning. Or another, another word. Alos is another Legoria or uh, Logos or speaking, another way of speaking, another way of thinking, another way of seeing this, right? That's what he's saying as an allegory. So he says it this way. It is written 
that Abraham has two sons. He's very serious about the history of Israel. Very serious about the history of Abraham. And this is his allegory. This is his jump. This is connection. If you could imagine two columns. An allegory is making connections between two things. These two women are two covenants. That's his point. The reason we're told this story of Abraham so that you would know is that Abraham had two wives. One, Sarah, and another who was a wife of his who was a slave. Her name was Hagar. We're told about Hagar very briefly. And then sometimes you would wonder why. Kind of like the tree of life. Told about the tree of life? Not anymore. Why? Paul is answering the why for Hagar. The reason we're told about Hagar in Genesis and the story of Abraham is because these two women are in truth, in reality, two covenants. And by covenants we understand relationships with God. There's two ways to relate to God. And his point is this. Our problem is not in relating to God, is not in his promises. It's not in performing the condition to fulfill his promises. Our problem is in the person, in us. That's the problem. It's not in God's promises to us, which is what all of Genesis and Exodus and all the law is, God's promises, but his promises were always attended with conditions to be performed. Don't go into the garden and eat that tree. Oh, you didn't fulfill the promise. You didn't fulfill the condition. You can't have the tree of life. Don't uh, go into the promised land and worship idols. Then you can have the promised land. But they worshiped idols. They get kicked out of the promised land. All of God's uh, promises were attended with conditions that need to be performed so that you could receive these promises. And that's a great thing. There's no problem with that. The problem is with the person, with us. That we were never able to fulfill these promises. Therefore, everything God ever gave us through the law, everything that was ever promised to us in his good intentions and kind intentions to us in the gospel, never could reach us. They never could find their way to us. We were cursed in our sin and transgression. And all through the law, uh, the, the Torah, the whole first five books of the Bible, Paul's point is to say, can't you find that theme? Can't you see that you're just repeating the same problems that have been laid out for us by generation and generation throughout the history of redemption, throughout God's plan of saving humanity? And they can't see it. So Paul's making a point, an allegory, a connection to draw the lines. And so if I could explain this remarkable reality between two fathers that we have in Genesis... The one is our first father, Adam, who had failed. He did not perform the promises. He did take of the tree. He was never permitted to take of the tree. But we know that if he had righteousness, if he would have resisted, if he would have done right, he would have had the tree of life. That's why Paul in Galatians 3.21, the previous chapter says, If the law could be given that had life, then righteousness surely would be by the law. That is, if a law, God's commandments, could have been given that produced life, 
life, then righteousness should be done by the law. Paul equates life and righteousness together. That is, if you have righteousness, you have life. If you have life, it's because you're righteous. So if a law could be given that gave us life, then righteousness could be by the law. He equates law and righteousness, life and righteousness. So if Adam could have fulfilled the law, do not have this tree, he would have been righteous by the standard of God's commandments. He would have been right, right standing. He could have put his shoulders back and said, I have done your will, O Lord. And then the Lord would say, now have life. And so there was another tree. We never saw that tree, but Adam's wife is given the same name as the tree. Her name is Eve, and she is alive, and she is the mother of all who are alive. But here's the beauty of the gospel, and this is, this is the center of it all before we go to communion. The center of it all is this. How did God make this woman? How did God make the mother of all? He knocked Adam out on his back cold. We're told that before this great surgery of taking Eve from his ribs, there was some anesthesia. We're told that God created Eve from Adam only after he caused him to fall into a deep sleep is what the ESV calls it. Behind that word is a unique Hebrew word, tardema. It's not the normal word for sleep. It's a deep sleep used only a few times in Scripture that deal with a stupor, a daze, a lethargy, a coma, to be deep, unconscious, incapacitated. Adam gets no credit for Eve. Adam gets no credit for this woman. Sure, she came from him, but he had nothing to do with it. He was in a deep sleep in which he could perform or do nothing right or wrong. Abraham is introduced as the law continues as a new father. His name means father of a multitude. But he has no children. So the promise is, here's the promise, you will be a father of a multitude. Okay? How are we going to perform that promise? This is how you answer the gospel. You can either try to do it yourself, or God can give you what he promised. Those are the only two ways. This is the allegory. This is Hagar. This is Sarah. This is Sinai. This is the Jerusalem above. Either you receive what he promised you, or you try to get it yourself. So God promises him, Avraham, father of a multitude, except he's not living up to that name at all. He doesn't even have one son. 
And so in Genesis 15 is when God actually makes a real covenant with him. The, 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 the beginning of it all was promises. Come follow me, I'll give you a land. Come follow me, I'll make you a father of many nations. I'll make you a father of multitude. All these things are words, promises. But then Genesis 15, it gets real. That's when a contract is drawn out. That's when the papers are brought. That's when the lawyers are there. That's when everyone can say, I am entering into a real contract with God. Genesis 15, this contract is ratified by Abraham saying, but God, how may I know that I will possess this land, being that you have given me no children? And he says this, Eleazar, my slave, this is the thing Paul doesn't like, the slave aspect of Genesis, my slave is going to inherit this whole land. I have no son to give him all of my inheritance. And then God pauses him and says, this shall not be the case. You will bear a son from yourself. His wife, Sarah, presumably. And then the tremendous weight and burden of being in the very glorious presence of God and entering into a solemn covenant, a land grant, a Caesarean vassal treaty of the ancient Near Eastern context knocked him out cold. He fell asleep. And this is the only other place in all of Genesis in which that same Hebrew word is used. The same word that put Adam to sleep, incapacitated in a coma. And he fell asleep, and he could never fulfill his side of the covenant. So God signed the papers for him and walked between the parts with smoke and fire. Paul's point to the Galatians is, And for us today, you need to praise God that Adam was knocked out cold. You need to praise God for that. Because the whole point of your salvation, that if you are connected to him linearly, by having faith like him, and that the covenant that he made with the Lord was based nothing on him, you actually may be saved. That it was God himself who entered into a covenant with man while man was in a coma, while man could do nothing, while man was incapacitated and had no power, no energy to perform the promises of God. The antithesis of it all, the reason Paul brings up Hagar is right after this covenant in Genesis 15, is Hagar in Genesis 16. That's the moment when Adam wakes up, brushes his teeth, has a little bit of bedhead, realizes that a great covenant has been made for him on his behalf, and he brought nothing to the table. And then him and Sarah said, you know what, we still don't have any kids. Let's see if we can figure out God's promises for ourselves." And then Sarah said, well, here's my slave Hagar. Let's, let's save ourselves. Let's add to the gospel. Let's make a cult. Now, I know God's promises are good, but he always needs a little bit of help. And so Sarah says, go and, and have my slave, Hagar, marry her, be with her, and a child is born. The whole point of the law, as God intervenes and says, this shall not be. That is, the child to come 
has to be by my power, by my ability. That is, the covenant with Hagar is related to God on performing the promises. This is why Paul says there is a woman of the flesh and there is a woman of the promise. One woman bore a child by normal flesh of Abraham. That he took it upon himself and made a child. And that is not how salvation works. That is not how God saves the world. That is not our gospel. It is actually a matter of promise that with Sarah, who is so old and in no way forever for years could never bear a child, that she gets no credit for it and Abraham gets no credit for it. That a child almost as if comes down from heaven to earth and just falls into her womb. It's miraculous. The child's there. And the promises is provided for. See, the problem is not with God's promises. And the problem is not with fulfilling these promises with the conditions needed. The problem is with us. That we cannot add. We cannot participate. We cannot perform these promises. That's Paul's point in Galatians 3.21. He says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could bring life and righteousness, would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. It had to be Christ. It had to be His virgin birth. It had to be God imposing His will upon humanity, bringing His kingdom into our lives, and us receiving it. Receiving it. Receiving and resting. And so as we approach this table today, you need to understand that when Paul says this woman, Hagar, corresponds, allegorically connects to the present Jerusalem, he's saying, it has been this way throughout history. There are always those who relate to God on performance, who reject the full sufficiency of Christ, attempt to perform some portion of God's promises to them, and therefore reject Christ entirely. This morning, I had a little bit of a gospel experience, you could say. It was 5 a.m., and Violet uh, ran into our room and woke us all up. And um, I looked over to Heather and said, what time is it? Normal question when these things happen. Should I just stay up or not? And she said, no, it's five. And see, that was the gospel for me. It's good news. We're like, oh, it's truly pleasant. It's just like, I'm going to stay back in my warm covers and go to sleep. I love hearing five. I'm glad she didn't say seven or something. It's like, this is great news. You see, that's the gospel. Faith is receiving Resting in Christ. If you have faith like Abraham, then you sleep like Abraham. And you sleep like a baby. You bring nothing to the table. That is your gospel. In the Old Testament, the way someone was described as dying was sleeping with their fathers. When someone were to die, they would be sleeping with their fathers. The reason you are children of Abraham is because you are 
completely asleep, you bring nothing to your gospel. And if you can sleep with Abraham as he did in that covenant with God, then you can also sleep with him forever. For Thessalonians says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring Jesus back with all those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Faith, receiving and resting in Christ. If you can receive and rest in him now, this table is for you. So take him in and sleep on the good news of the gospel. Dear Father God, we are humbled by this truth. We renounce all of our pride. We needed to hear this message, Lord. We needed to hear once more that the only good news we have is that Abraham was in a coma. The moment he woke up, he began to flounder and distort the gospel. Father, the only good news we have is that you have considered us dead in your son so that we might be alive in him now. Father, we ask as we approach this table, Lord, you would purify our hearts, that we would rest and receive you now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.